0: Welcome to Uplift, everybody. So glad that you're here, and I'm thankful, thankful to be back. I uh, had a lot of folks coming out of here during the summer, and I think it was a blessing. I had a, just a ton of variety, and in fact, we got a little kind of a postscript next week, uh, kind of a leftover. Uh, we had a couple of mission teams this summer, and one of them went to Uganda, and you heard from them two or three weeks ago, and another one went to Honduras. And we're going to hear from them next week because it kind of all worked. And some of the some of the students who went are in college. So it kind of worked that there's st- some of them are still here before they go to college. So we're going to hear from some of them. So uh, make sure you're back. So uh, it wasn't kind of my intention, but the Lord gave us this really welcomed interruption. So that'll be next Wednesday night. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, the Honduras uh, mission team. So all that to say. Welcome. Welcome to Uplift. This uh, message is going to be streamed uh, on Sunday mornings for The Conversation and on our podcast, Anchor Point. So however you're listening, we're glad you're here. We're beginning a new series in Uplift and on The Conversation called Counselor, Comforter, Keeper. Counselor, Comforter, Keeper. Those three words, you probably know this, they're featured in a song. You know the song? Wonderful, Merciful Savior. We sung that a time or two. It was written in 1989 by husband and wife team Eric Weiss and Don Rogers. Don wrote the words as a poem, uh, along with the melody, and her husband, Eric, wrote the harmonies. And this song famously uh, uses each verse to celebrate worship, uh, to celebrate an expression of worship in each part of the Trinity. So verse one is sung to Jesus, verse two is sung to the Holy Spirit, and then verse three is sung to the Father. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, thinking about and kind of praying over this Wednesday night series and this con- series for the conversation, uh, I was outside in the morning, I was doing some cardio, some running and walking, and um, it was quiet, took my headphones off, and just kind of had a walk to cool down in the neighborhood, and just listening to the ambiance in the neighborhood, the dogs and the cars and the birds, and, and I, I kind of zeroed in on the lyrics to this, the second verse of Wonderful, merciful Savior. I thought about, I just couldn't get it off my mind. Counselor, comforter, keeper. Um, and, and really needing my own season of peace and really giving it my best shot of trying to delight in the presence of the Lord, of what it meant and what it means to be counseled and comforted and kept. And what I what I realized in that moment. Was the depth of my own need for those three things—to be counselled, and comforted, and kept? Here's the here's verse two of that song. Counsel their comforter, keep it. Spirit, we long to embrace you. You offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost their way. Oh, we've hopelessly lost our way. I have to admit that those lyrics are tough for me to sing sometimes. I I tend to want tend to want to believe the words I sing. So I've scrutinized lyrics, read the lyrics of songs, even the songs that we lead on Sunday mornings. I kind of want to make sure that my heart's in the right place with those. I check myself. And so I had to in that morning a, a few weeks ago about this counselor comforter keeper. I mean, is the spirit of God really my counselor? that's, that's kind of what I kept focusing on see my comforter see my keeper and looking at the lyrics to that verse i just had to ask myself do i do i really want to embrace the spirit of god do i do i want to do that do i long do i yearn to embrace it and have i hopelessly lost my way i'm kind of at a point where i don't I don't really trust my own decision sometimes. So I've hoped, I hope, either I have or I haven't. I'm just kind of wondering these things, listening to the neighborhood, trying to delight in the presence of the Lord. My guess is that you've probably asked those questions. If we're going to be real honest with ourselves, I think we have. In Acts chapter 19, we find Paul in Ephesus, and it's probably the very city where Paul wanted to go most of his journeys. Once he arrives in Ephesus, Luke Luke says that Paul found some disciples of Jesus. I think it probably fired Paul up to find disciples of Jesus in Ephesus. He hadn't been there, he's there, and he finds them because he had to make disciples everywhere he went. So to find some, I'm sure that kind of surprised him. I want to show you this verse, and I want you to listen to his interaction with these disciples. This is from Acts chapter 19, verse 2. And Paul said to them, to these disciples, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard there was a Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to note as we kind of carry on through this message here and even through the series that the people that Paul found in Ephesus were disciples of Jesus. Now, that's important. That's critical. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. It says that in Acts chapter 19, verse 1. We know that. There's some discrepancy. People say, no, nah, they're the disciples of John. Well, we kind of know that linguistically because the word that Luke uses for disciples there is the word he used most often to describe disciples of Jesus. So the implications of this can't really be overstated for us. These followers of Jesus, listen carefully, they weren't disqualified because of their ignorance of the Spirit of God. Luke and Paul considered them part of the family believers even though they may have had good but insufficient teachers. Even believers in Jesus can be ignorant of the Spirit of God and have those deep questions that I have. So if you're here and you're puzzled about the Spirit of God, I just want to tell you, you're in good company. You're in good company. You're not in danger of losing your salvation. You're not in danger of becoming a less than member of the family of God. You're righteous acts done in the name of Jesus, they're no less important than the actions and the works of any other believers. You, you can follow Jesus and still have an insufficient idea of the work and the power and the availability of the Spirit of God. That's where I was a couple of weeks ago. And I'm very comforted by Acts chapter 19. I feel very comforted by that passage. You're not alone in your confusion. I kind of give you a little run through this thread of history. Because even though you might be like the disciples in Ephesus, you may not have ever been taught of the Spirit of God. You may have been taught to be skeptical of those who emphasize the Spirit of God. Maybe some of our charismatic brothers and sisters, or maybe you've become to believe that the Holy Spirit is just this strange ghost of the Bible. And it's been around for a long time. I was a church father around 300 years after the ascension of Jesus. His name was Gregory of Nazianzus, and he called the Holy Spirit the God about whom no one writes. 700 years after he wrote that, in 1054, in what historians call the Great Schism, the Eastern Church Fathers in Europe accused the Western Church Fathers of completely disregarding the Spirit of God. Imagine a dispute in a church. My goodness. This this argument, in a small way, led to the split in the first place. Catholic theologians in the 1800s called the Holy Spirit the forgotten God. And in our own time, you've probably read this book by Francis Chan, who wrote a book about the Spirit of God and used that phrase as his title, The Forgotten God. By the way, I recommend that book if you've never read it. The confusion of the Spirit of God is hurt obviously the church on a historical scale, but I think the confusion has also done a little bit of damage to us on a personal level because I think even with insufficiency and maybe insufficient teachers, we've missed the real and active presence of God in our lives. And look, that confusion won't keep you from God or won't keep God from you. It certainly keeps us from noticing him. So I'll tell you all that to say that i really have one objective in this brief series, and it's this, to bring you some clarity about the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to dispel, nor do I claim to dispel, 2,000 years of confusion. Nor do I believe that every single question you have is going to be answered, but I I do think you're going to find this series challenging and refreshing. You might find yourself rethinking some things you thought you knew, and you may learn some new things that you were taught were wrong. That may happen. So here's what I'm going to do right here. I'm going to give you the roadmap for the next few minutes for this message. No surprises here. No left hooks. I'm going to lay it all out for you. We're going to talk about two things in regard to the Spirit of God. I'm going to tell you what they are. First are the names of the Spirit, and the second is the nature of the Spirit. No big surprises. If you're following in your outline, you can probably figure out where those are. That's what we're going to talk about. Names And nature, pretty easy to remember. So first, let's talk about the names of the Spirit. Now, when you talk, when you talk and you read about the Spirit of God in, in the Bible, two words, two words appear most often in both the Old Testament and the New Testament when talking about the Spirit of God from the 40 people considered to be the authors of the 66 books in the Bible. So I want you to think about that. 40 people wrote these books there's two common words across all of them. Now we're going to break this up, right? So in the Old Testament, the most often used word for the Spirit of God is the Hebrew word ruach, R-U-A-C-H. Say that word with me, ruach, ruach, yeah. Ruach is a very complex word, it's a complex idea and to understand it, I'm going to ask you to forget your preconceived ideas or notion of the word spirit. So Whatever you think about spirit, not Holy Spirit, but just spirit, I want you to put that aside while we kind of walk through this. Now, I'm asking you to do this because we've kind of assumed that spirit, a spirit, the spirit is something disembodied, right? It's something else. It's a free-floating entity that exists apart from us, or really exists apart from anything. The word, though, ruach, actually disputes that. The Old Testament writers used this word 380 times, and 27 of those times were used in direct reference to God and to God's ruach. You're going to hear me say that word a little bit, okay? Now, those 27 times, listen to this, were written across the span of a thousand years across all of the writings of the Old Testament. That one word is what they kept using to describe this. A thousand years, dozens of authors, and here's why. Because there's no simple, single definition that's really good enough for God's spirit. But scholars think this about this word, and I think it's going to help us understand it. They think, I'm going to show you this on the screen, they think it's an Automatopoeia. Say that with me. Automatopoeia. Yeah. I dare you to use that in a sentence before you go to bed tonight. Automatopoeia. Remember that? You know what an automatopoeia is? Yeah. It's a word that sounds like something that it describes. The most famous one is like our English word buzz, right? Buzz is the sound a bee makes, and it's the word of a sound that a bee makes. That's what an automatopoeia is. Scholars think That ruach was formed that way. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't speak Hebrew. I'm probably butchering this pronunciation. But scholars think that that word ruach is an automata. That it is the sound of wind in a storm. In fact, it's the word found here. Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind, by a strong east ruach, all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Now, I've been through a tornado, and I've heard the winds of the tornado. I bet ruach was in there somewhere. That word wind in this passage, that's the Hebrew word ruach. Ruach is something alive. It's not dead. It's something mobile, not static. It's the word for wind. It's the word for wind. But but when it's given as an action of God or comes from God, it becomes a storm of, of irresistible force. It's the breath of God's voice. You know what God's voice does? It breathes stars. That's what the Bible says. And God's voice creates worlds. I want you to think of the power of God's ruach. It's a storm that takes life. It even takes life. I want you to look at this. Look at this prophecy through Ezekiel to the false prophets of his time. Look at this, Ezekiel chapter 13, verse beginning in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Now, these are all God's words through Ezekiel. I will make a stormy wind. I will make a ruach break out in my wrath. This comes from God. And there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones and wrath to make a full end, and I'll break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and I'll bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's the power of God's ruach, but it also gives life. It doesn't just take it, it gives it. Ezekiel writes this a little bit later in Verse, chapter 36, verse 26, and I'll give you a new heart and a new ruach, a new spirit, and I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. In verse 27, I didn't include it in the slides, that's my fault, but you know this. He says through Ezekiel, and I'll put my spirit in you. I'll put my ruach. Now, all of that context may help us better understand something, really some critical work of the Spirit. And that work happens the first time we are introduced to the Spirit of God, to his ruach. First time we're introduced to it in the Bible is right after the moments of creation. Remember that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form, and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the sea The Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. God's breath, His storm, His irresistible force, it blew over the chaos of creation before God's Word brought order to the world. That's the first name of the Spirit. There's another one, and this one's in the New Testament. And it's a different word, by the way, because the New Testament, written in a different language than the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. You know what the New Testament was written in? It's Greek, written in Greek. It's common Greek. It's the Greek that they would text each other, right? That's what it is. The word in Greek is pneuma. The P is silent. Say that with me. Pneuma. Now pneuma has a similar meaning. It actually also means breath. It has a little more trailed out, but that's really at its core. Now, our English language struggled to translate both Ruach and Numa with one word. Two languages, two cultures, thousands of years, multiple authors using these words in different contexts. English translators had to figure out how do we use. What's the common denominator when we translate the Bible? I mean, can we really, just what I'm speaking as a translator, can we as a translator, should we translate the Spirit of God as the breath of God, the wind of God, the storm of God, because it's all different in various contexts. Its function seems to change because God's actions are very dynamic. Sometimes it requires a great wind to blow a sea apart, but sometimes it's a gentle breath, right? So English translators used the closest word available that seemed to encompass the richness of both ruach and Numan, And that word is spirit. One word for two languages across thousands of years. Because spirit sounds right, kind of feels right. But this is my opinion here, right? My opinion solely. Spirit doesn't really bring the same connotation as the storm of God as the breath of God, as the wind of God. That's okay. The Lord's work has still been done, even without Kyle's opinion. Whatever it's called, I don't want you to miss that the Spirit, the breath, the wind of God is an unstoppable force. It cannot be resisted. Now, that's the name. It's the name of the Spirit. I told you we're going to talk about two things. Now we're going to talk about the nature of the Spirit. In other words, what does the breath of God do? What does it do? Here's what it does. The first thing it does is it gives life. breath of God gives life. God's ruach, listen to this carefully, it resides in every human being. Every one of them, good and bad. Thus making every human life an experience with God's presence. Let me show you. Psalm 104, verses 29 and 30. When you ignore them, the psalmist says, when you ignore your people, God, they panic. When you take away their life's breath, ruach, they die and they return to dust. But look at verse 30. But when you send your life-giving breath, your life-giving ruach, they're created. And you replenish the surface of the ground. In other words, I want you to, I want to be clear here. God's breath is not just limited to the good church folk. Okay. Every person alive is created in the image of God and experiences the breath of God because it's his breath that creates us. Everybody gets this. Everybody does. Here's what that means. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. Nobody is. God doesn't accidentally breathe life into people. You feel me? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist because, because God, if God wanted you alive, you're going to be alive. So you live because God created you with his breath. And his breath is inside of you. It's the unstoppable life force inside You and me, we're image bearers at our core. But there's more to this story. And for this, I want to read John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. One of my favorite passages in Scripture, by the way. It's the account of Jesus meeting his disciples after his resurrection. I want you to read. Let's read this together. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and they locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, look at look at how John wrote this. After he said this, what did he do? He breathed on them, And what did he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. Look, the breath of God not only gives life, it also gives new life. It also gives new life. God unleashes a storm in you when you realize Jesus is alive. When you realize that Jesus is God and when you realize that Jesus is worth following. You are born again. That's what the Spirit of God also does. Scripture attests to this time and time again. In Romans chapter 6, I'm not going to put this on the screen, but you can read it later. Paul calls this new life. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul calls this that you become a new creation. When he wrote to Titus, Paul called this experience a new birth. So did Peter. The breath of God through Jesus gives you purpose. It shows you why God breathed you into life in the first place. Man. And finally, the breath of God gives a new family. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look what Paul wrote here. Each person, the manifestation of the pneuma. The spirit, the breath, is given for the benefit of all. For one person is given through the spirit the message of wisdom. And another, the message of knowledge according to the same spirit, same pneuma. To another, faith by the same spirit. And to another, gifts of healing by the one breath. To another, performance of miracles. To another, prophecy. And to another, discernment of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of those tongues. It is the one and the same breath, distributing as he decides to each person who produces all these things. The breath of God, the spirit of God, the presence of God, it isn't something just experienced personally. It's experienced corporately. As God breathes us into new life, it's his energy that bestows upon us different gifts in different measures. And I want you to hear this carefully. We can't fully experience this new life alone. You can't do it. We see the interconnectedness of God's new creations when we gather and when we see with our eyes how God creates unity in the midst of diversity. That's what God's Spirit does. And look, it's an absolute miracle. Let's just be honest. It's an absolute miracle that we all get along. It is. That's that's absolutely right. That is what God's breath does. It gives us a new family. And I'm going to tell you what, some of us need that family. Some of us need it. Here's what I ask of you today and through this series. I'm asking you to breathe in the breath of God. That's what I'm asking. Paul has a unique word for this. He calls it fellowship. I'm going to show you. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14, very famous verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, if we take this English word, spirit, and we read it as its original Greek word, pneuma, we get the intention. It's the fellowship of the sacred, the holy breath. It's the holy breath. And what Paul says is breathe it in. Breathe it in.